Hey there, and welcome to the Blood, Sweat and Ears podcast. I'm Phil Bashford. And I'm Merrick De La Fuente. Today we're going to be talking about all things drums, from recording techniques in the studio, editing and treatment, sample replacement and workflow. So here we go. So I started out recording drums in a mate's garage probably, yeah, 20 odd years ago. Uh, there was some carpet up on the wall. Because nice. that's how you treat stuff back in the day. The carpet makes things sound better. Yeah, carpet makes it warm. That's what yeah, I've nice. learned from yeah. that situation. Uh, we had a little Mackie mixer going into a laptop, and there was a bunch of cheap mics that yeah. we had. And cheap mics 20 years ago kind of sucks. Well, cheap, uh, yeah. Now cheap stuff's way better. Um, yeah, so kind of bad, badly tuned drums, probably bad Lip. playing into, yeah, into yeah. bad gear. And I think that's my rights to passage of uh, then, you know, having kind of better gear to use now and that process of using the bad stuff and getting, after some time, a, a fairly good sound out of it. Yeah, there's, I think, if you want to record drums, there's a, you have to go through the stage of realising how many moving parts there are when you record drums. Mm. So when you first think about it, you just think, oh, well, I'll just put some mics on the drums and then drums are recorded. Nice. But there's so much... So many other things going on, and so many things you need to look out for. Yeah. That I'm still learning today. You still like, there's always, oh, if I do it like that, it sounds totally different. Oh, oh, that's what phase is. Oh, okay, I understand now. Yeah, that, I was that, wondering why it sounded crap, sounded great in the room, but real bad in the mic that I put in the same place as my head. You've just kind of reminded me the first kind of things I did when uh, I had a flat and I'd kind of go and record at this, this guy's garage and take it home and you're you're kind of doing very basic drum editing mm. you know when you're a bit green and you're kind of going in and chopping stuff out and you're kind of moving a snare because it's only the snare that's off and then it cause, causes kind of loads of weirdness yeah, with the overheads and it took me a while to kind of because uh, there was nothing on the internet either really no. so you're kind of flying blind I remember on, guessing half the time on the Andy Sneap forum someone put like a gif up of like slip editing in cubase and like it was like that kind of mind blown dun, dun, dun. Of like, what is what everything happening? changed yeah i think when i realized i could edit drums and i didn't didn't just have to rely on a drummer like not sucking and particularly drummers when they first start out it's very hard to be a really good recording drummer it's, it's a very hard thing to do yeah, especially because, when you're young, you're you're hitting the cymbals as hard as you can, and that yeah. makes everything harder. And yeah, it's like I think there's nothing better than recording a really good, really good drummer live, but they're quite rare. And I mean, like lots of drummers are good, but I mean, really, really good to the point where the groove sounds great. There, the way they push and pull is really nice, and it's musical, and it makes everything just sound better. But for the most part, that's just not the case. Everyone's normally kind of a little bit clunky. And people want aggressively in time music anyway. They they do, and I think if you know, you can totally tell people that do a lot of uh, recording and and opposed to people that don't do that and are kind of mainly live drummers. I think yeah, it's kind of almost black and white. I did um did a thing a couple of months ago with Woody Woodmansey who played on all the David Bowie stuff. Mm. He's one of the original Spiders from Mars, and you know he's been. Woody's in his 70s. He must be in his 70s. He just kind of self-levels. He just gets it done. Yeah. And uh, that's because I guess back in the day they probably had less mics and he would have been told to yeah. not play the cymbals as loud because it's louder than everything else. They would so. have done it and they probably would have spent more time 
just on drums in the studio. Quite often with these things, it probably actually doesn't sound that great when you isolate it out, but because the song's really good and the other performances are good around it, it all fits together nicely and it's mixed well. Yeah, I I think I think that's definitely the case with with drums. If you know you're you're in the studio and it's all gelling, the tones just should all kind of fit together. It shouldn't be kind of square yeah. peg, round hole kind yeah. of vibe. What now from back in the day? Because you you had a place. Did you have a place at your parents' place, like a little shed? That Briefly, you could do? so the first place I ever recorded drums was the drummer of my very first band. His like he had this like kind of open plan living room thing. You know, like a living room that opens into a conservatory yeah, yeah. type thing. And um, so I was like, okay, cool. Yes, it'd be sweet for doing drums. I had like an eight-channel lexicon thing from back in the day. It was a weird. It was like shaped upright. Yeah, it I was, know the ones. Yeah, yeah, I had one of them. And it was just awful. When I lived in Brighton, I, was, I had like an attic room, which yeah. was, I never recorded drums in there, but I did a bunch of recording in there. And I'd record at this underground, like flat thing that a friend... I knew at the time had and he had like a really basic setup he had like a few mics and stuff and it was tiny it was like the size of a I mean I don't know of a good reference point but it was tiny so I did a couple of things in there that constantly had leaks it was a basement flat and if you've ever been to like a seaside town in the UK you'll know that there's some of the flats have like a floor below the the, uh, the street level and there's quite often like a grill you can see down into it so it was one of them it was just some guy's basement and it was awful. And then when I left Brighton, I um, my parents had like a little outhouse in the garden thing, which um, they'd been using as like an office. And they were like, yeah, you can do some recordings out of there, which was great until the neighbours had enough of... You got issued... Uh... Like suburban neighbourhood. And just me tracking drums with like death metal drummers. I bet, I bet that All day down. for hours. Yeah, just like <laughs> late, boozy little... Just Teenagers yeah, being awful, yeah. Nineteen-year-old drummers playing blast beats and smoking weed. Great. It was just okay. not not urban neighbourhood, the suburban neighbourhood that it was. <laughs> right, it worked for a bit. After you, after you been in there, I, I think I got that space near Haywards Heath, yeah, yeah, which was Audio Empire. So I think, I think I had that with Dave Archer, um, mm. and that that's closed unfortunately now, as, as as you know. That was a great space. That yeah, the live room was massive, and um, we kind of kitted it out as best we could with the gear we had, and it was busy. There was a couple of rehearsal spaces there as well, but the live room was mahuso. I think it was seven or eight meters by six meters, mm. maybe more. So it was. They could have even been bigger than that. I'm not quite sure, but it was, and it was high. Yeah, um, that was probably one of my fav- favorite live rooms, and when I had that you'd come and do some bits there yeah and then you had uh, a place in Croydon didn't you? a place in Croydon at the old good old Scream Lounge Scream Studios Scream Lounge was there the venue that it also had there that um, was a solid staple of the UK touring circle in the 2000s yeah it's, great. it's a shame like um, it closed, it's a cool place it closed down and they had a, a proper run down at the end though it was real really kind of like mice and rats and shit. I, th- I think I think though, like with with Scream, because I, I went there. I think the first time I went there, I was like eighteen. So this was like nineteen ninety nine because I'm old. And it was like they had like a Nirvana room. They uh, still had all of that. Yeah. yeah, but they were all like really nicely kitted out. And then unfortunately, like broken glass theory sets in when stuff gets a little bit bro- broken and 
and people just died. It was almost like, yeah, you can go into Scream and just break stuff. It's fine. Yeah, and it, that was almost like the, that was like the, the calling advert, like Carl, yeah. wasn't it? Like, yeah, it's fine. Just break it. It's, just make it more broken. Just destroy it. It's okay. And it was a shame because Abe had a Abe was the chap yeah. that uh, owned it and ra- ran it. He he had a place. Aid, I think it was Aid. Aid right, yeah, Aid, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he had a place in um, Cole Shorn as well, which was round the back of uh, a theatre. Mm. And that's now where it was Crunch Studios. But that was that was wicked. So you go in and there was quite a big kind of multi-level mm. space with some arcade machines yeah. and like a little kitchen. And I think that got split up into two rehearsal spaces and they did a bit of recording in there. Because it was the, I think it was the Charles Cry Theatre workshop. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I think it got used for that. But... I'm not sure. I don't think that's open either anymore. Yeah, there's nothing. There's um, basically nothing around because it's very hard to anywhere sort of anywhere remotely near London. How expensive it is to have some a plot of land that size to do anything with is just massively prohibitive. So you can't really it, either. You have to make it so expensive, and the ones that are in London now are like the big ones, like the ones where all the huge like arena acts go and rehearse. I can't remember, can't remember the name of any of them at the minute, but they're um, like they're just really expensive. Yeah, those kind of hangers. I went to one. Uh, I went up to Don Larkin's place. So he's a guy he sells consoles and mics and stuff. Yeah, I've heard of yeah. Don, yeah, and um, his his brother was um, Tony was the guy that had all that TLA stuff. So he that was Tony Larkin Audio. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, his brother does all that but he doesn't they, they i think that company's defunct now but we went up there and someone like the weekend was rehearsing in this yeah hangar and it was like a proper pre-production place full production with the lights and everything so yeah those places are great don't get me wrong they are. Like, but they're just you're not going to get you're not going to get a burgeoning local scene from a place like no, that no you're not because um, there's it's just prohibitively expensive and always booked out there's no more like entry level places for Bands to just go and muck around and rehearse. No, you know, I think we're kind of lucky around here, you know, not, not, we're slightly off topic talking about rehearsals. Yeah, but, it's um, just drifted. Yeah, drifted there. But, you know, there's the Hive Rooms is fairly easy to get to from London, near Gatwick and Brighton. And, you know, I suppose Brighton and down to, to our neck of the woods here, you know, there are, you've got Brighton Electric and there is, is the Hive. So we're kind of lucky and they're both kept nice yeah. and decent. It's a bit further out of out of town though so it's not in central london yeah london's so. just but everything you know ritz yeah. um i think ritz is still there but there was another production mm. place that closed down now so yeah it's getting it's getting harder but same as the venues and yeah, that's probably a whole other conversation yeah isn't let's it? let's get back re- and to, redirect to drums uh so yeah you had your place your your parents yeah place for a bit before the, you got booted the, yeah then i did some stuff uh, at that Hayward Heath place, which was cool. And then shortly after that, a place became available at Scream, which we got sidetracked with. And so I was there for a couple of years. I was gonna did loads of stuff in there. That was great. It was just it a was bit a cool like room. just it was just sort of a bit leaky and um just I don't the, know, just a bit, bit gross. The electrics were spicy. Yeah. I uh I recording did... real amps in that place was interesting because it was like <laughs> just ground hum, hum central yeah i remember when i think you were away and i i was doing a session with a drummer and you gave me a key and we're like yeah here's the stuff this is where you turn the electric on and i think i turned off like loads of electric in loads of the other rooms by <laughs> these people came out 
and like I'm just there, and it was All like fuming. proper like on this 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 kind of intake board pushing fuses. So up. when people do those, uh, like the explore abandoned buildings. <laughs> like old hospitals and then they find the old power unit and there's like spiders all over it and dust and you've got to like push through the cobwebs yeah, to get to your switch screwed, that was yeah. that was it that was what it was like but your, your space was good you had a little control room and the live room was fairly decent size yeah it was solid it, it worked and you know you're able to kind of make make records out of the places that i've had that were my own that was the best one i did loads of stuff out there that was a lot of fun actually and scream but then after that it was hive opened and i just kind of track drums wherever and then do everything else at my home studio because i think you kind of left hive when covid kind of hit and it i let why well, I, I had that room at hive yeah yeah for a bit yeah because you had a, that like wasn't a, a drum room that was like a control room yeah it was so. a small kind of edit suite room wasn't it it was yeah. a massive it had kind of yeah it was kind of treated nice it actually sounds really good that that little room yeah uh, covid came and that kind of put that all to bed and everything mm. else for a lot of well loads of places closed down didn't they yeah i think then you yeah you were kind of doing stuff in, in the space we're sitting in now yeah and that kind of leads on to what we were kind of talking about last week you know you do most of your your guitars vocals and any production bits in here and then either hire hive or or wherever or wherever the the artist wants to go for for drums and maybe some vocal, but generally yeah, I mean generally vocal. I can I I do here unless we've got time. Occasionally, if a studio's got like a really cool fancy mic and we've got a couple of hours, like yeah, go on, let's just sing some top lines. Yeah, let's get it done. Get some shit in the chain. Yeah, fuck it. I get that. So garage stuff. So we've kind of both had our little kind of ghetto setups. Yeah. You kind of learn how that all pieces together. Once you... you can make a record sound half decent when drums are recorded really badly, then then that's like you've leveled up. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, we kind of touched on like editing drums and that was a big game change for me when I kind of realised how to edit drums correctly. But the other thing that kind of came round the wrong way, I guess, was I had Dramagog now. I don't know. Oh, yeah, I used I used a cracked yeah, version of, of that. Yeah, of course I don't think anyone. anyone I don't, used not, a legit I don't know anyone at Bolt Tramagog, um, <laughs> but everyone had it. But it was a bit janky because you could put it on a snare and it would trigger it, but it would go wrong quite a lot. Yeah, and it'd play the samples late. I'm on, yeah, cause... I don't know whether that was that was a problem with the plugin, or it could well have been a problem with the cracked version <laughs> of the plugin. I've, I've had that before. This is true. Back so, in the day. This must have been like yes, a good ten years ago. Yeah, I think when did yeah Dramagog Four Platinum came out in two thousand and eight, and I didn't know this because I did a little bit of I did just a bit of googling just earlier before before I popped over here. And Superior Drummer actually came out in two thousand and four. So Blimey. anyone, I'm sure everyone knows what Superior Drummer is. It's a it's a drum programming bit of software which is controlled by MIDI. It's been used on a ton of records. Yeah, it's been used loads of stuff. But and that came out in 2004. But I didn't really know about... I think I, I was a bit late to the party on that. I don't think I really got on the easy drummer thing, which is the smaller, more easier yeah. to use platform till like 2008. And I was demoing with it. And then I kind of came to that moment. I'm sure you've had it as well. Where you're like, yeah, yeah, we programmed the drums. Now we can go and record them badly in a bad room. Yeah. Or... We just use... <laughs> just use these yeah yeah exactly and that gives you a different understanding of 
how drums work as well. You kind of realise the difference between what a guitarist might want to hear and what a drummer would actually play yeah. in that scenario, given how just human anatomy is with where your arms are and your legs and you only have two arms and you only have two legs. So it's a good way to learn what actual drums are. I'm sure everyone's done it who's got a bit of drum program software where they've programmed a fill or saying and then a drummer hears and it's like, dude, like, that's impossible. That's a six-armed guy you've yeah, written or, that for. Or the classic, you know, the hi-hat's still going when the tom fills going. Yeah, I love that one. That's a good one. It's like, wow. My favourite one is really aggressive, uh, unplayable, like hi-hat foot going <laughs> where there's really everything loud. like this mad kick pattern going and the hands are doing everything but somehow there's just like someone's yeah peddling the hat it's just it's just not happening maybe it's the drum tech or something just peddling the hat who knows yeah just leaning over then uh yeah trigger came out trigger Uh, still use that to this day to be fair trigger one was kind of quite a different beast i think that came out in 2010 and i ordered it from america and it came in a like jiffy bag and it was like cdrs <laughs> so the 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 main installer was on a cdr and they had this thing saying oh yeah yellow ma- yellow matter copy protection it won't, and it's like no you've just made that up There's yeah no, exactly. this it's is just, a cdr yeah and the uh so all the sam- yeah all the samples were on discs as well i think it was like 10 cdrs That's so this crazy. is before you think of like 12 years later steven yeah. slate's like made hardware they've got console yeah a but, whole thing whole other realm that company's done bits yeah, in the last mad. 10 years but yeah that was that was crazy cd-rom installers and mad yeah hats off to stephen slate because he made it work yeah because it didn't work really like yeah it's yeah, pretty pretty janky before drama gog was rough and as you say that may have been because i actually never had a proper copy of it yeah exactly or, i still know i still know some guys i think it tends to be older guys who who have were around in that era making records when um, they will still just lay only lay samples manually. That's long. That's so long. I, you... I tried it for a bit. I was oh. being a bit. I was like, I'm going to be a purist. I'm going to lay them. Yeah, perfect phase every time. Yeah, oh. let, let's go. I did like did it once, and I was like, this is literally making every single thing I'm doing take two hours longer. Yeah, it's just this is not worth the. It doesn't sound that much better just trigger it print the sample print it out and then sort it out if you want to do that there you go i did a thing recently on a a, like funk thing and put it all in time and it sounds sounded really good but the ghost notes weren't really doing it so Mm. i basically turned the threshold up on the gate and just got rid of all the gumph in between Mm. and then i just laid the i laid all the ghost notes in by hand and it actually sounded way better for it sometimes it does sound better particularly when the if you've got a drummer even who is putting ghost notes in, but they're not like, they're pretty like clunky, heavy handed sort of, they're not, uh, like you can see what they're going for, but it's just not, it's just not locking. Like those ghost notes aren't going to be getting picked up too much on the rim mics or the overheads, unless he's properly like, like it, fat yeah. fingering it. Yeah, it, it made it made quite a difference and it kind of gave it a consistency mm. that I couldn't really get. Because I've got um I've got Oxford drum gate and that's got, Yeah, that's great that. that that's one of my favourite plugins. And actually Ben Hillier, uh, engineer Ben Hillier put me onto that 
yeah, he was like, there's a sale, go and buy it. So I think it was like 40 quid, so I went and bought it. Yeah, let. And yeah, it's got the leveller. Mm. It does a bit of transient design. It's like, that's a bit, yeah, it was just, it was tripping that up. It was confusing it. Mm. So mm. do you find yourself kind of tilting towards multi-layered replacement or are you going for single hits? So it depends. If I'm just enhancing, like if, I, if the snare sounds great or whatever and it just needs a bit more something, if I've got a good fat snare sound but I just want a bit more like ping on it or something, then I'll use just one shot. But in fact, yeah, if I want to, if I need to replace the snare, I'm probably actually not using multi-velocity samples because I'm probably just turning it to MIDI and just by hand matching velocities if I'm replacing, if I'm yeah. doing like sound replacement, I'm using MIDI because it's just better and like you don't have any issues with hits. That probably means I basically never use multi-layered uh, velocity samples. I, I'm with you on that one, I think. Because they just tend to be messy and it tends to just get it wrong and there's not normally enough variations. It's the velocity layer for me, someone set the bounds of how hard saying is, a lot of the TCIs, if you've got your if you've got your velocity up quite high, everything comes out as a hard hit, which might be a rim, mm. and then the attack is kind of different. So if yeah. you're doing something that's a little bit softer, it doesn't need a kind of sharp, really fast transient. Yeah. I just find it's you get every kind of snare just sounds a bit pingy. Yeah. And so I might, if I'm using a you know a one shot, I might go for like the medium, yeah, not the really hard one, and mm. then it's a bit more tonal. Yeah. I think it's quite hard to control a yeah. TCI on a snare, for yeah, instance, exactly. to get I it think to work. The only time I'd use TCI is if it's just a round robin and not a not a um, multi-velocity. I think it's the multi-velocity thing that it just doesn't do very well. It just kind of sucks out. So if I need multi-velocity sample replacement, I'll just convert to MIDI and just do it on MIDI because then so I've got full control over it. Then. When you say MIDI, obviously I, I, I know what you're saying. The, you've done an audio to MIDI, and that may have been using Trigger. Yeah, you can export, do that in Trigger. Or you might have used or the Melodyne. Or, or the Oxford Gate as well. Yeah, Oxford it? Gate does it. And I think now on the new, because you're on tools here, I think you can... You uh, can just drag it onto a track and it'll yeah, sort of do it. And yeah. it kind of does it into me. I don't know how... I haven't actually used that as of yet. What are you putting that in? So, it depends. Probably one of the... I don't know, something like Superior Drummer, the Get Good Packs, Drum Forge Packs... Whatever I think it needs. Like, if I want... I mean, it's difficult to say. There's no, like, set rule on it. It's Sometimes it will just be to trigger a, a single hit sometimes even. But for the most part, it's just... I'm using whatever I think will fit best out of the many drum libraries I've got. Whatever I think will fit best in the mix. That's really all it comes down to. I've got perfect drummer. I've yeah. got get good modern and massive and i just bought the drum forge matt grainer yeah matt grainer or matt greener griner griner sorry matt griner <laughs> and that's great and i'm finding myself if i'm doing a demo you can uh, you can bring up the drum forge matt grain griner 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 <laughs> the matt griner one and it just does the thing yeah and it's like you know you just left right done um if i'm doing like rock stuff I might not even use the directs, but the rooms on Modern Massive are by far the best. Yeah, yeah. done at Middle Farm. Yeah, I haven't got Superior. I've got it. I've got it at the studio. 
I don't use it that much. I don't use it that much, and the it does. You know, they've re, they've upgraded it, and it, that does an audio to MIDI. Yeah. It's pretty spot on. But that I find, does an audio to MIDI for symbols as well. Ah, I didn't know that. Which is pretty mad. That's clever. Yeah. But I just find it. I find the interface a bit clunky. Yeah, I think uh, Superior Drum is great. Superior Drum three because it does everything. But sometimes I can't really be bothered to go through everything. Sometimes I just want to put a thing on. Okay, cool. The snare sounds great now. Nice. Done. Yeah. Rather than messing around with, okay, but like, which room do I want to use? And which, uh, how much dampening on the snare do I want? Yeah. How much do I want to, what tuning do I want the snare drum? Like, it's great. It's super useful. If I was going to build like a kit from scratch to make it sound as real as possible, I would definitely use Superior, Superior 3. Superior is the one, but I think if you're doing quick moves like Matt, Matt, Griner. <laughs> oh, this is the thing now. The Matt Griner pack, because um, you can basically tab out on the snare. Yeah. You've got like the rooms and you've got, and it's the same with the uh, perfect drums as well. You've got like a parallel on it. Mm. So you can turn a parallel compression up. So you can get some pretty decent sounds up really, really quick. And I think Superior's definitely got a place like for rock stuff. You know, it's, yeah. it's wicked. But I think a lot of the time I'm reaching for slightly more processed stuff. Because mm. I'm processing stuff. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I just want a, th a sound to do a thing. I don't really care. I'm not really fussed about how it's got there. If it does the thing, then great. I don't. Quite more often than not, I don't want to have to spend ages shaping a sound that's not like it's just like an extra thing that I'm adding in for a certain reason. I don't want to have to spend hours doing that. That's a waste of time. So what you're kind of getting at is. Yeah, if you were going to say, you know, you've got some general MIDI for a, a rock track, there's no drums and they want it super, like, organic, you, you'd reach for Superior and you're going to build it from the ground up and it's going to be... Yeah. A, if, you, if, you, if you've got a track that's 80% done and you need a little bit more spice for a snare yeah. to just to juice everything up a little bit, you're probably going to reach for some of the more processed stuff yeah. like GGD... The drum, drum forge. forge stuff like that, and I know yeah. like drum forge they do the um uh kick forge type thing as well, which is just MIDI, but it's like it's just got samples built in for like a kick, so you can just scroll through kick sounds like that. Oh, wow, that's clever. MIDI thing, which is clever. So it's like a partial drum program. Okay, it's quite useful. I did a mix last year for like a hardcore track, and it had like a China beatdown section in it, and I used. The drum forge china on that. Yeah, yeah. it's good because it just sounded way more decent. I like the symbols on that stuff. Yeah, I think I think drum forge have got the symbols. Can uh, uh, it's mainly the articulations on them. I think. Yeah. I think a little bit better than the get good stuff. Yeah. Not much. I think the get good stuff sounds more roomy and organic. Yeah. If you want something that's a bit tighter. Um, drum like, forge is much like blackier and much sort of in your face. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's just it's. Well, it's. I suppose it's completely geared geared more towards metal, isn't it? Mm. So this this go kind of full circle and talk about if we're miking a kit up in a yeah. studio, what are we what are we reaching for at the out of the mic cabinet? You know. So let's let's say we're doing it's it's a rock record. They want they want options for some like more notey kind of kick and snare tones but we also want a nice tight dry thing as well yeah standard kit so there's one one up one down for tom so just two toms yeah we've got a brass snare 
It's yeah. uh, let's say it's a, a Yamaha absolute kit. So we've got 22, then yeah. 12 and a 16, and then kind of usual amount of symbols. And we're going to close my, what, what are we putting in this kick drum? What are you going for? Probably definitely going beta 91 in up on the skin. And why are you putting a beta 91 up on the Cause skin? Cause it's just, it's just like beta attack really. So for people who don't know, that's a boundary mic. Yeah. So it's like, like on its own, it sounds like not great. It's just clack. Oh, hell yeah. It's just like pure slap from the beta hitting the skin. But I want that. I want to be able to control that as a thing. And then probably maybe like a D6. Yeah, on, D6. On the, not, not necessarily outside, but just on the, the port. In the hole, on the port mm. sort of thing. If I'm going to have an out, like a kick out mic, might use FET 47. I tend to, instead of having a direct kick out for that kind of thing, I tend to prefer having a mono room mic that's set a bit further back because it basically does the same thing, but you can get more, like, you can get springier with the rest of the, the drums playing. Right. And then a sub kick, for sure. So you're, you're going up to, like, four... Yeah, I'd say that's that that second last one I mentioned probably isn't doesn't qualify as a kick mic because it's not there for the kick. It's a mono rim mic yeah. instead of having a Beta Forty Seven like a couple of feet back from the kick or a foot back from the kick. I'm having it four feet back, and it's also picking up the whole kit as well, but just kick heavy. So it's probably it's not really a it's a mono. Is it would be labelled as a mono rim mic right. in the session rather than a kick drum mic. So there's probably three. So are you reaching for a FET 47 at all on the kick? Some, yeah, some kind of condenser, sort of. Not a ribbon? Could You could use a ribbon. I'm sure that'd be cool as well. On kick, have you ever used a Sennheiser 602? I don't know. Because that's like my go-to. It's like an Audix D6, but... They've hyped the lows and the top on it a little right, bit. Right, yeah. I so mean, yeah, I'd normally that do that with EQ thing. anyway, yeah. So I I'd, I think I'm I'm probably going to buy one of them because I just like them. But yeah, so Snare, um, when when I moved into Audio Empire with uh, Dave Archer, there was a, a studio that had kind of been removed from the control room and there was a filing cabinet. And in the back of the filing cabinet, there was a Bayer 201. Yeah. And I didn't really know. I'd never used one. And so we put it on a snare and then it just stayed on a snare. That's the pencil one, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It looks like a, it looks like a pencil. Yeah. And that's kind of been my kind of go. Yeah. That's right. I, yeah, for sure. I use that a lot as well. I use that one every time I've got my hive. Yeah. They're great. They're great. I kind of insisted that we get, get at least two of them and yeah. And snare definitely. And then bottom, I, I like the other one. What's, What's the, RE20 is great. RE20. What's that one, the other Bayer Dynamic, the one that's M88, like a... M88, I think. Yeah, the one that looks like a really old mic. Looks like an old vocal mic. Yeah, yeah. Weird. It's got the little, like... Yeah. They're, I don't know how you describe it. They're great. I, they're really bassy, aren't they? So they they work really well for, like, wiry snare drums. Yeah, yeah. It's nice. They're great. Then toms... What, what are you thinking on the toms? So... The, the mics that sound best on the toms themselves are 421s, MD421s, but everything else sounds horrendous through them. So I quite often won't use them and if it's like rock, cymbals, heavy stuff, because it's just just bleed all over the shop. 
like real black, bad, ugly, yeah. horrible bleed. Not like oh, I can hear the symbols. Like yeah, the symbols are as loud as the tom. Yeah, card. like just un- unpleasant sounds. So if I can, if I can have a set of four four one fours, that that's <laughs> that's really nice. But that's very expensive for toms. <laughs> and I've only done that a couple of times, but um, that's that's probably the the goat uh, uh, Tom set up. But um, what's the other? I can't remember the name of the the D fours or something. Yeah, the, so the you mean the, the Audix? The so, Audix yeah, ones, because yeah, we've got uh, at the Hive rooms. There's a so I, I hadn't used them before. D twos and D fours. I think I, I work there, but yeah, it's a D. So it's a D six, D two, and a D four. Yeah. And they're they're because they're hypercardioid um, mics, so they're really tight. The polar pattern on super tight, and they're really great for noisy, loud, yeah, symbols. And they're they're just great, and I like the tone of the drum sounds good through them. So they work for me quite a lot. They're my day to day. Yeah, I think they're good. Tom mic. Someone asked me the other day to like recommend them some Tom mics. What would I get? And I said, yeah, those D twos and D. I think the D twos go on the are for the racks and the d4s are for the floors but yeah they're, they're I mean, not yeah you can buy a whole set of them and they're not like super money and i think i think bang for buck compared to a lot of other stuff i think yeah definitely great live as well yeah so it's just they're very sort of rejection patterns good it's useful for toms what overheads uh what overheads are you kind of leaning towards lately like? so i always love classic pair of ua7s if you can that's really nice i also like the coles 1080 ones as uh as overheads as well they're really nice um yeah those would be my my favorites but again any any sort of any can pair of stereo match condensers will do the job like yeah. pencils or large diaphragm i think ribbons I, I, even i think i'm like you i prefer to put a large diaphragm condenser up on as the mm. overheads i just think you get they're a bit softer aren't they i think pencil condensers can be a bit bit sharp on symbols yeah as overheads, they can be it depends like the the neumann is it the, the 184s they're they're not very bright so you can get away with them yeah uh, but some of the kind of more uh, kind of cheapy pairs i've used they just can be a little bit sizzly in yeah a kind of unpleasant they're like way. yeah ugly in the top end and are you are you close miking anything um symbol wise yeah and it all affects symbols so if there's any splashes bells rides chinas hi-hats obviously um stacks any whatever because they're normally always always used in like moments yeah. in songs so they're very important if the, if the drummer's got a stack that he uses in fills and stuff you need to be able to turn that stack up 20 db on a fill because it's it's an important part of the fill and then you just turn it back down and get rid of it but you need that ability for for the mix yeah I to think, make stuff pop out and sound sort of how it should i think i think that's that's important and there's a couple of different ways of kind of capturing symbols mm. and hi-hats in a kind of effective way I, I tend to go for the kind of miking from underneath on kind of rides it's good on ride in china yeah and then hats i try and point it at the kind of the edge of the symbol but the opposite way of yeah the snare drum if get that makes some sense. rejection from the snare yeah and i've seen some other i used to use a, 
SM7B on the hats a lot, and it's good for kind of if the drummer's playing open a lot. But I, I'm kind of leaning towards a pencil condenser a mm. little bit more lately. Yeah, I think they're nice. I think I like I like using two dynamics on the China and the hi hat, but particularly if they've got them wide, because what I then like to do is kind of treat them as extra rooms, like just extra kind of whole kit mics. Because right. I can t- have them quite loud and hard panned, and they become like another room mic. And you've got basically, if there's two like relatively similar dynamic mics, like if you've got an SM7 on hi hat or an a 57 on the China or vice versa, whatever, they'll kind of not sound wildly different. And you just level them and turn them up fairly loud, super wide, and then you've got a super wide image of your kit as well. Yes, I, I've never done that, and I suppose dynamic mics, yeah, you're not going to, they're not quite soft, are they, so... Yeah, you're going to get, like, punchy shell, it's like, if you listen to it on its own, it's not like, it's not like oh, this sounds really good, nice drum sound, bro, it's more like, in amongst the rest of a drum mix, if you just want to give it a bit more width, and have, like, the china be further over to the right and the higher be further over to the left you want to go for something really big then it's super useful for that also in small rooms as well because you can kind of make the whole thing feel a bit bigger with that yeah small small rooms are quite quite an interesting thing aren't they because i do I like a small room there small rooms are great but it can cause a bit of work in post because if you want to make it sound like it was in a big room there's some shell manipulation with yeah. drum libraries going on but that's fine i think you can also in small rooms you can still get you can make it sound like they're in a bigger room if you do you know i think the thing that me and you've done quite a lot in small rooms is kind of try and get a ribbon up in a corner and then maybe put like a music stand in front of it and create a little bit of a pocket so it then you can roll the top end off it and it it kind of gives the illusion i think the key with small rooms as well is lots of have a few different like mono room mics that you can smash up and do stuff with and just go heavy with transient designer and get more. Cause really what you're after with, with the, having a bigger room is snare decay and maybe like shell decay as well on Tom's. You're looking for like the, the, the each note hit to be longer and fill more space and be more like epic and grandiose. Yeah. So, and you can quite often do that with a, how get some of that effect anyway with like a well smashed up mono room mic you're going to get some snare decay off that i think the thing with rooms so many ways of kind of treating them but as you say in a small in a small space i i quite like some ribbons and i like to smash them pretty hard if there's some distresses or yeah yeah similar i suppose you could like do that. it with 1176 just kind of Hit, hit, do, it, hit. do it with your stock plugins. It'd be sweet. Yeah, all the stock <laughs> plugins. It's good to do it on the way in because then it's one less thing to think about. Yeah, for sure, definitely. If you've diff- got access to, if you have access to any sort of stereo pair hardware compressors, yeah, or even I'd, just mono one straight in, absolutely bitch it. Get it in. Yeah. So, once the drums are in in the session, so. You're in Pro Tools. What what's your first port of call to prep for tracking of guitars and bass and such? Well, you'd you'd comp the takes first, so you'd put together 
you'd basically finish the drums. So you'd you've got your takes, you've got your performances and stuff like that. And sometimes you'll do this in the session with the drummer. Sometimes you'll do it afterwards, depending on what what the vibe is. And um, you'll just pick the best takes and do any edits you need to do. So the first thing would be, yeah, pick the best takes and just do a good comp. Then you'd get it edited and edit it so it's the like the final tightness because you're going to track everything on top of that. And then that's basically it. Maybe you'll do some sample enhancement if the drum is a little bit tickly and not and not like slapping the shells just so it sounds exciting for people to track guitars to. So when you're in tools, because I, I use Reaper and I slip edit by hand just because I've always done that and it kind of, you can set it to uh, auto crossfade and stuff. So it's actually yeah, yeah. only a few keystrokes. Are you are you using Beat Detective or are you going in by hand in Pro Tools? Both. I'm using Beat Detective to detect hits stuff because it is very good at that. Then I'm doing bits by hand. I'm using the quantize function in Pro Tools and doing also doing some bits by hand. It's just a bit of a bit of both really, depending on what needs to needs to happen. Because sometimes you can't, like the computer will struggle if you've got multiple things going on at the same time. Like if you've got a part where that's in sort of straight sixteenths, and then and there's a fill that comes in that's triplets over the top. You got to treat those separately. Or sometimes right. there'll be a fill that's like three triplets fo- followed by four straight sixteenths, and so you'll have to do that by hand because, and then but you can just use the grid. Yeah, I can't say I've, I I did delve into a bit on Beat Detective, but I've never really sat down with it. But what I do know is that you're better off using the quantize function. Yeah, yeah, the rather... quant. They've absolutely. It used to work great. They comp- in one of the like last few years, the recent uh, updates to Pro Tools, they've completely like jacked up how the uh, how the Beat Detective quantize function works. It just doesn't work. So if you want to use Beat Detective, you obviously find all the transients with Beat Detective, then bring up the quantize window. Yeah. After you've put cuts in to to get it gridded. Yeah. Then go back into Beat Detective and then put your crossfades in. Yeah. Okay, they need to fix that. They, yeah, absolutely, wow. they do. It's very clunky. How much a year is that? Thanks, Pro Tools. Yeah, fix that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's it's mega clunky. But I, I don't understand why they don't just put like put the same, just have the same function, the same quantized function in Be Detective. Yeah, that's a bit. It's very stupid. It's a bit around the houses. I think doors kind of do that. I was Cubase for years, and that um, that was really cool for slip editing. And the warp function was way ahead of its time. But they tried to kind of four years ago. I think I think I bought ten, or I can't remember. They brought out a new one, and I installed it. And they they kind of made it look a little bit more like Ableton. So everything's like one screen, and like I had two screens. And so you'd have to like, if you wanted to put like transient point like markers into like warp edit a guitar, you'd have to like double click on it. Then it'd bring up this pane. Then you've got like a threshold thing. Then you click out of that and then you're back into the like play window. But then you can't now, you couldn't move any of the transient points. 
maybe I'm sure someone will say that I was doing that wrong. I'm sure there's a it, reason for these all these it, things. It, Same it, with the it just seemed one. Like those that extra click. I'm just like, no, I'm not using this anymore. Yeah, it was it was very annoying. Thing is, now it's funny. I've kind of in, inter. This is bad as well. I've internalized that issue, so that okay, that's just what I do for drum edits. That's just normal. That's just normal. I bring up those two windows instead of one window. <laughs> it's stupid. It's completely stupid. They definitely need to fix it. So, avid, if you're listening, sort it out. Yeah, sort it out, avid. <laughs> it's not on. We've talked about some microphones. We've talked about some light processing. So one of the one of the things we I suppose we touched on in the last uh, podcast about recording was kind of managing managing a session. So how how are we doing that? You know, so we're we're doing same scenario as last time. Band are in. They're doing four drum tracks in a day. Drummer's brought his own kit. So what are we doing? from the base level what was the discussion before the drummer turned up well the discussion probably firstly is well what what are you bringing what what equipment do you have that you want to use out of your drums do we need to hire anything it's like practical questions of what what we're going to be using what kit we're going to be using all of that stuff then it's probably about heads if you're hiring normally you can arrange to have fresh heads on it stuff like that if uh if you're bringing your own kit, then you need to arrange your heads and have like backups as well for the session. Maybe not if you're doing like two or three tracks, maybe you don't need to sort backups, but it's always advisable. But if you're doing an album, then you'll need to for sure. So there's a bit of a thing with heads because if you're doing a vintage rock record or something, you can pretty much get away Doesn't with matter. Lots yeah. If you're doing If you're doing an album, and depending on what sound you want, Especially if you're using clear heads, they, in my opinion, get a bit plastic, fantastic sounding. Yeah. After a while. Um, yeah, yeah. Quicker than coated heads. So. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. It all depends on what you're what you're actually doing, what you're what you're aiming for. But um, yeah, I think heads are heads are a funny one because if you're going for a big kind of rock sound, they do need to be quite fresh because that's where you get all that stick attack and the the bloom into the room. That kind of happens, which you don't really get as skins die. But again, if your if your aim is you're going to sample replace lots of it because that's what the the artist is after or whatever, then I mean, doesn't really matter. No, as long as they're getting true. a performance, yeah. And do you use because I I tend to I tend to use a bit of both when I'm tuning drums. I tend to use a drum dial on the yeah. hazy uh, heads to get to get them equal then i'll do it by ear for the yeah for the the top heads do you use a similar thing or do you yeah just... pretty much i mean again it depends what depends what we're going for because if we're going for a big live room sound then i'll spend more time making sure all the toms are tuned nicely like with pleasant sounding intervals between them and make sure it all works together cohesively but again if it's going to be like if we're doing a metal record and we know we're gonna and the budget's tight and we know we're gonna sample replace a lot of it then it doesn't really matter i'll just make sure they're not rigging and make sure they're not doing anything horrible yeah if i can make them as percussive and yeah unresonant as possible for that particular scenario then i'll just do that and because you used to have uh 
You used to have triggers. Do you still use triggers at all when you were... No, never recording there. They're more hassle. Yeah. It was also, I think, like, that was from an era when drum sampling, like, sample replacement software wasn't anywhere near as good. So to account for that, you'd get triggers, trigger signal, because you'd get, like, a really pure trigger point from it. But the, the software is just perfectly good enough now to be able to pick up even kind of fairly... Uh, rounded like mm. tom hits yeah it was a thing you know you go into a, a lot of places and they'd have d-drum triggers and they're going into a separate interface that was normally a, just a kind of cheapy interface because it didn't need to it was literally as you say just picking mm. up the kind of horrible sound that a transducer mic makes yeah and then going in um i think one of the first things i did with the metal band i played in in my 20s we went to philia studios which was the copro record uh recording studio and he had some triggers and there was some kind of midi set up and then it was going into like an alesis d4 yeah and then back into the machine so that was how it was done yeah like in the late 90s early 2000s before it got a little bit more complex but that that's a minefield because you've got all the so many the moving parts and all the threshold and all the like re-triggery stuff it's just so many moving parts it just seems like that's just that just seems stressful. It is stressful, and I, I was only kind of exposed to that. And then when I I did a, a gig in Brighton in a band I was playing in, and we had a kick drum trigger, and the stage was hollow, and then you know you've got a fifteen minute changeover, and the kick drum triggers being a dick, and that was stressful. Yeah. On a little like there's one of those Roland pads, and you're there on the tiny little screen. Yeah, yeah. Trying yeah. to like dial in the. Dial in the, the sound <gasps> rock kick one preset on the. <laughs> it was gross. Yeah. So I, 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 yeah, I didn't really ever get into the the trigger thing. Um, the yeah, the manual trigger anyway. So I'm glad that's died a bit of a death. Yeah. So yeah, we went a bit off kilter there once again. We seem to be good at that today. <laughs> so we've 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 kind of got the we've got the kit sorted. We've got some heads dialed in, and then we may have had that chat about how the guides are happening and how how are you managing this guy so he doesn't get or girl doesn't get knackered doesn't get into a like a, a red red sorry record button fever kind of vibe how it depends on them it depends on what their vibe is i try and figure that out sort of early on i also try and figure out what their actual ability is ability is as well because if they're really good then it's worth spending more time over certain things because you know we're getting good performances every time. Yeah. So it's worth spending the time on, oh, could we make this feel a bit better? Whereas if they're less good and it's all a little bit sticky and sloppy, then you know that the focus is getting enough takes to do a comp. Yeah. And, and not might... worrying too much about like, oh, maybe this feel, you should do this instead here and stuff like that. Like you just, at that point, you're trying to, you're trying to get enough that you can build a really good approximation of what they're yeah. what they're going for. And the beauty with stuff now is, you know, drop-ins are just really helpful. Piece so of piece, yeah. As long as you've, you know, as long as you find a part where there's this is the symbol sustains not going to mm. cause a major biggie, you can do drop-ins and then because that's the other thing, you know, people start getting red light fever yeah. and they're playing, you know, the outro of the second chorus is the bit they need. 
and you're running it from the start they've got two minutes to like to think about to that. ruminate on how badly that's going to go and that's yeah, yeah. exactly what they do yeah whereas if you just drop them straight in then they don't tend to think about it it's over before you can you have time to think too much about it yeah i, I found i got some really good results i did 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 something with a band a couple of years ago and so they did all their demos they built them um a template in reaper and so they all had the same drum sounds they had the mm -hmm. same guitar amp everything was the same and so they demoed everything and then we did the session in the studio for the because we did a day day's drum and reamping and the drummer had the same click that he'd been programming the yeah, drums yeah. to the only obviously the only differences were the he was hearing the drum in the room sound yeah, rather yeah. than the midi when he was playing and that really smoothed over so many cracks because yeah. those little things like the click track is different to the one the drummer uses so it throws him off or yeah yeah or oh that doesn't sound the same as it did you know at my gig when i use this gear or whatever mm. brand of weirdness so i try and remove as many elements of those especially i'm saying more for like nervous people or people who are a little bit green yeah definitely um, remove as many elements as you can so yeah. they're kind of as comfortable as they can be yeah exactly they're really allow them space to ease into it so well. i think i think the thing with recording especially when you're doing drums because it is such a hard working instrument to get down well mm. i think regardless of someone's ability i think the heat's on to a degree yeah because of the price of studio time and how long it yeah. takes to set drums up you know mm. we touched on this in in our last podcast about recording where if we're getting in at 10 o'clock and we're setting a kit up, you ain't recording till two o'clock really. Yeah. yeah. Um, if, if you're doing, a, you know, more than two tracks, cause you, it's the back and forth, trying a couple of snare drums, moving the mics around. Yeah, for sure. Checking the tuning, the kit has to settle in. Um, and so, yeah, I think I try and remove as, a, as many kind of like stuck point elements as I can yeah. before we even sit down. And I think it just makes the day, go easy and that click thing's mad because i've had that a couple of times where people have been completely thrown by by click sound yeah i think it depends how people have been practicing as well i think i do try and get the, the click sound in the studio as close to whatever they've been practicing to as possible some drummers don't care some drummers are like whatever it's a pulse yeah i don't care, I don't yeah. care what the pulse is but some drummers are like no it has to be cowbell too on reaper really loud yeah, yeah yeah exactly like piercing but i mean yeah it's it's again it's recording so it's all so much about psychology of what's going on in their head and allowing them particularly as a drummer where there's so much like coordination involved if you're not kind of locked in and comfortable then it's just stiff and uncomfortable and weird and yeah you never quite feel that it locks in uh, yeah, it's a weird vibe. I, I did a I did a record where we we programmed a lot of it was in like six eight, so it was that kind of like swingy kind of thing happening. And we did we kind of built some loops up which had like percussion on the offbeat, so it's almost like syncopated in places. And that really helped because we recorded everything live, mm. and that really helped kind of keep everyone in track because it fills in those spaces yeah where things feel weird and then that's what puts people out of time if yeah yeah if you're 
20 year old me and you're a bit shit yeah um that and that that kind of really helped and we had it was hilarious listening back into the cans because you've just got all these weird percussion things going off uh, but it just gives a vibe doesn't it It helps the bounce a bit more it definitely did and like the 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 guy was producing the record guy called pete brown he was like yeah we're going to do this i was like you're mad but it, it did, you know. It does he, help, yeah. He was totally on point with it. And I think we just did it on a drum machine, like, by hand. I don't think it was... It wasn't mega-like, yeah. Yeah, no one went in and was moving bits about in tools. It was... <laughs> and that, yeah, I think stuff like that to- totally helps. It's a bit of a weird one. Um, but that 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 session, actually, doing it all live was very hard because then you've got the push-pull yeah, yeah. of if the drummer's going off a little bit and you're... So that that that's a whole different yeah definitely thing. yeah totally yeah we're tracking stuff live all together is a whole a whole other ball game with a whole lot more moving parts and a whole lot more chaos yeah I'm, I don't I don't like doing that <laughs> actually like, once again it depends like it depends on the thing like yeah. did that those um the uh, blues guys Bob and that with um and that was. A huge chunk of that was live in the room, and that's quite cool. But again, those are guys who are used to playing in a room with each other, like for decades. Whereas most sort of younger bands don't really do that. As we were saying earlier about rehearsal spaces not really existing, this people don't yeah. people tend to write songs individually on their computers and then send each other stuff to to work on. People don't really get in a room. And just just like write songs on the spot anymore. It it's that classic thing, you know. On that Most night. bands never play their own tracks live until they're recorded, it's which true. is a big difference from like 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, and I, I think you know, I when I've kind of flipped from kind of being in a kind of established band and then going more into recording, and you start recording people who haven't kind of been into a studio or whatever and the classic thing and you know you still hear it i'm sure you still hear it now as i do where people are oh, it feels really slow when i'm playing to the click it's like well because you've practiced that where you're speeding up if yeah. you have practiced in a room with your band you haven't done it to a click and so you're naturally speeding up by 510 bpm on that section yeah and and then they feel like it feels really slow and you're in the control room listening going no that's that's really correct that's how it needs to be yeah. yeah and that's one of the you know as you say it's like one of the mind kind of tricks of this where so you know i think once again pre good way around that is just double the uh double the click so is that your top tip yeah top tip if a band feels like the uh the track feels slow because they're used to playing it quickly it might also be because the track is too slow so you can't rule that out always sometimes you do have to speed up if you've just started recording something but quite often that's not the case so you double the click in that scenario where they feel like it's too slow but it's not too slow because then psychologically more subdivisions are filled in so they feel like they can copy it and that's the exact thing i was just talking about with, with, better, yeah. with my weird click thing in the, weird, in the studio yeah, yeah. he must have just stuff. been going how can i stop these guys from sucking also it's just more it's more fun playing along to a shaker or something, or a tambourine, or a hi-hat, than it is to a metronome. Yeah, and it's that thing, as soon as you can get, if a drummer's like really anti-click, and you do get it, if you can get a guide down to the click, and then remove the click, 
Fine. And maybe have a you know a little bit in the background or whatever. That's another really good way of getting around that yeah. issue because a lot of drummers still who you know, aren't experienced to playing to clicks. They might be in function bands for years, but haven't really done any studio stuff. And yeah. you say click, and they start kind of hyperventilating. Yeah, you know they're getting sweaty palms and. Yeah, I feel like I feel like though, if you're if you're a drummer, you should you should you just should be able to play to a click. It's like if you're a singer, you should be able to sing in tune. And if if a click's a problem um, with you know the arrangement of the song, just put a put a prompt track in your ears. That's yeah. what loads of bands do that now uh, in the studio and live um, all the time. Yeah. They've they've got someone. There was a whole thing on TikTok. I think it was like while she sleeps on one of those yeah the, kind of hearing their, what's bands. going on in their head yeah, yeah and it's like there's like one of them's like got on there and he's calling him a name and slagging yeah. him off in his ears just before the queue and yeah great. i love that doesn't it's matter fun. how you get there <laughs> yeah the fir first time i was aware of that whole kind of kind of like prompt track thing was someone i knew did devin townsend because he did like loads of gigs at the union chapel mm. and they were videoed and recorded and it was put out as a box set and um, so he got all the stems off the board for to go to the mix engineer. And yeah, they had like Devin Townsend going, this is going into this time signature in, and he was counting it all through. Yeah, Brilliant. nice. And I suppose you'd need to for that kind of proggy stuff. That kind of weirdness, yeah. Yeah, he's mad and that he's mad. mad. But yeah, that's kind of common common ground now. So if you need a prompt in the studio, just... Just do one, just I make one happen. People, I count people in over the talkback all the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly, same. Just why not? Just might, might as well make it as easy as possible for everyone. Yeah. I'm all for that. That's it. Cool. So we covered quite a lot today, and I'm sure we could do stuff in more detail. And it yeah, might sure. might be cool to kind of maybe do a, a drum Q and A. Yeah, drum Q and A, and also maybe yeah, we're kind of talking about templates and stuff for demos. Maybe we should put something together for that. Yeah. Because that would be an idea. Um, so drumming in the studio, that's one thing. And just to kind of summarise this and bring it to a close with a few questions, like for a lot of people out there who are kind of, say for the more kind of novice guys who are starting out, who are you know, getting some skin in the game here, drumming is obviously, you know, it's not like you can go and do record drums particularly easily. What would, what would you get? What's a good tool? for songwriting for demos what bit of software drum wise are you going to buy that that does the thing uh i if i'm just doing demos i'm probably buying one of the ggd one kit wonders because they always have sales on and even when they're not on sale they're like 60 dollars right and what does that's a that's one kit wonder so they do so they do like a rock one or... yeah there's a rock one there's a metal one there's a a, a a couple of rock ones i think and they're all pre-eq'd yeah things. they'll they'll sound great out the box you and they've got they got like midi patterns yeah there's stuff you can load in as well or if they're not on the actual plugin there's loads of midi patterns on the internet and that's a really good starting place because the first one i bought was easy drummer years ago and that mm. that was a game changer for songwriting because you can just drag and drop midi over and the sounds were okay but we've come quite a long way yeah since then. for sure so, so yeah, if you're getting started out, go and go and have a look at that stuff, and maybe we'll do a template. Even with we could maybe look at some free stuff as well. Yeah. 
Um, cool. Well, thanks for listening today. I've been Phil Bashford. And I've been Merrick De La Fuente. And this is the Blood, Sweat and Ears podcast. <laughs>